wonderful singing today. And you know, as we sing these hymns, they, I don't know about you, they speak to something very deep in, in the need of our souls. We're not to glory yet, we're not to heaven yet, and we know that. We lament the, the brokenness that we see and that we feel in our, in our lives and in our world. And all the hymns that we sang today spoke to that, right? Uh, the first hymn we sang, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim in a weary land. you ever feel that way? I'm, I'm not home. This is not home. I, I'm not a citizen here. I'm a citizen of heaven. It's a weary land, right, where there's no water. There's nothing to ultimately satisfy. We're, we're looking to Jesus. We're looking to our heavenly home. We're looking to, to Canaan. Abide with me. He will hold me fast. I think it's good for us as believers sometimes to sing and to, to express, even lament, at the, the condition of, of our souls, of our world, and then to look to God, to, to, to put our eyes on the one who holds the oceans in his hands and put our, put our trust in him. We're in Luke chapter 18. Follow along as we read the first eight verses. And he spake a parable unto them to, the, to this end. That men ought always to pray and not to faint. Saying, verse 2, Luke 18, verse 2. And there was in a city a judge, which feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city. And she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said, afterward he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith. And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith? On the earth? Think back over your, this past week. How many of you at least one point in the past week had to wait for something? How many? Just show of hands, quick poll. How many of you had to wait for something? How many of you had to wait for somebody at least once? You're in the car, you're ready to go, and then you're, you're, you're like, where's the other person? And you're like, oh, wait, I didn't know we were leaving. Right? And that, that happens from time to time, right? Waiting for something, waiting for somebody. How many of you like waiting? Anybody out there like, I just love to wait for stuff. I love to wait for my tax return. I love to wait for people to answer phones, return phone calls. Okay, none of us, right? There's no hands going up being like, man, we're really into waiting. Uh, we, we, we want stuff to sort of happen. We want it to happen kind of now, uh, if, not, if not sooner, right? Waiting can be very frustrating, uh, especially when you're like, hey, we agreed, we're going to get 11 a.m., and then you're like, it's 1230, like, what's going on here? Or you're, you're stuck at a red light. You know, the lights here in Mobile are awesome, right? You're, you're sitting there, and there's like, there's nobody coming. My light's red for like 30 minutes. What, what's going on here? It can be really easy to lose heart and to give up. You ever, ha- you ever left like the doctor's office where you're just like, you know what? He, he's not going to see me today. I'm, I don't have time to wait the rest of the day. You ever just sort of walked away to be like, you know what? The waiting has just gone on too long. We're going to have to reschedule. Waiting can bring frustration. It can bring discouragement. It can cause us to lose heart. And you know what is true in our daily lives? 
Waiting can be discouraging. Waiting can be disheartening. Is actually true as well in the Christian life. You realize the Christian life in, in large part is one of waiting. We're not to glory yet. We're not to the, the finish line yet of our race. We're in between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming. And we talked last week about the certainty of the kingdom that he's going to establish. That yes, it's inaugurated now. But it's not been fulfilled yet, and we are awaiting the coming of Jesus. We're awaiting him making all the wrongs right. We're awaiting him returning to crush every enemy under his feet. But we're not there yet. And between the already of he's come and he's saved us and delivered us from sin, and the not yet of he will come and save us and deliver us from the presence of sin and from this world and from our our mortal bodies, there's a lot of room for discouragement. Even now we are redeemed, we are justified, we are forgiven, and seated with Christ in heavenly places. Yet death still reigns in this world. Though the kingdom has been inaugurated, indwelling sin still besets us. You ever get frustrated with just the sin that remains within you, and you just say, oh, wretched man that I am. We're not to glory yet. Suffering still afflicts. Evil still dominates this world. The the, the kingdom has not been fully established yet on this earth. We are awaiting the future fulfillment of Christ's kingdom. We are anticipating his second coming. We are looking forward to that day when sin and death and evil and pain and suffering are no more. But you know, it's been 2,000 years, and we're still waiting. It's been 2,000 years, and it still hasn't happened yet. The passage that Michael read earlier addresses that question, where is the promise of his coming? Or the question that the the souls, the martyrs under the altar in Revelation 6 ask, how long, O Lord, holy and true, how how long? We know that you're going to to make things right one day, but, but how long? How long till this evil runs rampant? How long till injustice is not dealt with? We're waiting. And maybe as we're waiting, maybe as you're waiting, you're beginning to doubt. You're beginning to ask the question, where's the promise of his coming? If Christianity is true, If the the God of the Bible is real, why so much evil in our world? Why has he not dealt with it yet? Why why suffering? Why pain? Maybe you're, you're even beginning to wonder, you know, this Christianity stuff just delays all the hope to the future. Yeah, and and Karl Marx kind of came up with the idea, sort of the opiate of the people. It makes everybody sort of be okay with their plight, their suffering, not to make their world any better. And you begin to think. Maybe it's just made up as a way to control people. Or maybe the promise of the second coming, if it were true, would have happened already. How do we live between the the already of the first coming and the not yet of the second coming? How do we learn how to wait well? That's what Luke chapter 18 is all about. Now, the context here really matters, right? If you were here last Sunday, we talked about the reality of the return of Jesus. He is going to come back one day and establish the kingdoms. We like the lightning shining from one end of heaven to the other. You're not going to miss it. It's going to be very public. It's going to be surprising to the world. It'll be like the days of Noah and Lot, where everybody was just eating and drinking, having a good time, and then the judgment fell. It's going to catch this world by surprise. And so we need to be ready now. But what Jesus arises, the question he's dealing with here in this chapter, in Luke 18, verses 1 to 8, we get it sort of bracketed to the first part of men ought always to pray and not to faint. Don't, don't lose heart while you're waiting. And then there's that statement at the end of verse 8. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Will, will 
people still be trusting and waiting and anticipating his coming, or will they have become discouraged and given up hope? So if you're in a place this morning where your hope is beginning to erode, when you're in a place where you're, 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 when you fear, my, when I fear my faith may fail, maybe you're in a place where discouragement is beginning to besiege your heart, maybe where despondency has overrun your soul, these eight verses are written to address that, to call us to hope, to, to pray, to be confident as we await the coming of Jesus, as we put our eyes on his promises. How do we maintain our faith in the interim? How do we make sure we don't lose heart? What ballast should go into our souls to keep the, the ship of our souls steady as we go through the storms on our voyage to the distant shore? Quite simply, Jesus makes a, makes a very simple point. We must maintain our faith in God's promises. How? By persistent prayer. Prayer is the means of laying hold of the promises of God. Prayer is the means of giving us hope giving us confidence. So you'll notice our text this morning. We have uh, Jesus gives a parable in the first five verses, and then verses six to eight, he applies it. And that's very simply our outline. We get the parable, then we get the point. So let's walk through this parable that he, that he gives to us. We actually get the purpose of the parable in verse one. He's giving them this parable to the end for the goal, for the purpose that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Now, I don't think Jesus means like always pray, like literally always be praying, praying all the time as you're, you're, you're trying to preach and you're also trying to pray at the same time. Like, listen, we, we don't have the capacity to do two things like at, continually always pray, even when you're sleeping. How does that work, right? So he's not saying constant, unbroken, continuous praying. Rather, he is talking about persistent praying. He's talking about the big, uh, the big sweep of history as we wait from the, the, the first coming and wait the second coming that we would continue making the habit of praying, that we would not give up hope, that we would have a habit of regular daily prayer. And hopefully prayer punctuates your day on, on uh, regular intervals. If something comes up, you run to Jesus in prayer. When, when, when thoughts of doubt and fear arise in your mind, you run to Jesus in prayer to where there's an ongoing conversation with God. People sometimes say, well, it's a spirit of, of prayer. You know, since prayer is an action, it is a verb, it's not an attitude. So I'm just in a spirit of prayer. Sometimes this idea of you know, having an attitude of prayer can sort of be an excuse for never really actually praying. It's kind of an attitude. Okay, we need times of prayer. So we're talking about persistent prayer, praying over the long haul, praying even when you don't see answers right away. You're like, well, I prayed one time for this. It didn't happen. Keep praying, Jesus says. You're praying that your faith would, would, would continue, and you're like, but there's still discouragement, and I prayed for God to take it away. I prayed for the thorn in the flesh to be taken away, and it doesn't. You keep praying. Don't give up hope. So not unbroken prayer as much as persistent prayer. Praying over the long haul. Consistent prayer, not continuous prayer. See, as we await the coming of Jesus, the longer we wait, the easier it is to give up hope. That's why the Bible says, keep on praying as you await the coming. That's why uh, Hebrews 10 says, we should gather with God's people so much the more as you see the day approaching. Listen, when things are going bad in your life, that's not the time to neglect spiritual disciplines. That is not the time to get out of church. Sometimes I hear people say things like this to me. You know, I just had a real, I'm having a really rough time, so I'm not coming into church right now. And you're, you're kind of like, no, the time when you feel like you need it least is when you need it most to pray, to gather with God's people. We pray thy kingdom come. And I think that's what Jesus is referring to here, praying and looking for the coming kingdom even when we don't see it. 
So we get into the parable. We got some, some characters here. We got this wicked judge that's introduced in verse 2. Look at verse 2. There was in a certain city. We don't know where that says whether Jewish or Gentile. It doesn't really matter. There's a judge who does not fear God or regard man. Simply put, Jesus calls him an unjust judge. Okay, this, this judge does not have any regard for the law of God. He does not regard himself as accountable to God, as under God's authority, as following the dictates of God's word. So basically, he's a law unto himself. He's not under the law. He views himself as above the law, as over the law. Beyond that, he doesn't care about people. He neither feared God nor regarded man. Now today, some people will be like, well, that sounds like a pretty good judge, right? He's not letting religion cloud his judgment, and he's sort of blind impartiality. That's not what's being referred to here. Rather, the idea is nobody can tell him no. He's completely unaccountable, does not consider what people need, what is right, what is wrong. No concern for the judgment of God, no restraint. By accountability to other people, he is self-centered and lives above the law rather than under it. So Jesus is going to use this example of of a wicked judge and of a persistent widow to say, Christians, keep on praying, because God is not like that judge. Whereas this judge is self-centered, it doesn't care about people, God loves his people, so pray. That's going to be the point that he's going to get to. If a corrupt judge can be cajoled into action, by a persistent widow, how much more a loving father. So simply, the judge is not a positive comparison to God, but a negative contrast to God. We get our next character, and it's this widow in verse 3. And there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of my adversary. Now, we often think of a widow. You're like, well, she must have been really, really old. But listen, in the ancient world... Often there was a, a gap between the, the age of the husband and the age of the wife. Life expectancy is short. So she might have had a spouse die when she's in her 20s, in her 30s, in her 40s. She's, she's not necessarily old. Uh, but she is vulnerable, right? In the ancient world, a widow, a woman like this, would have been incredibly vulnerable to being taken advantage of. So not only has she drunk the bitter cup of bereavement, she is now utterly helpless and defenseless. In our world today, we prize equal justice under the law. It's like enshrined into the 14th Amendment of our Constitution. It doesn't matter your skin color, your, your background, any of these things. Equal justice under the law. In the ancient world, often it was who has the most money, who's the most powerful, and who can bribe the judge, right? That's what it comes down to. So for this widow, she doesn't have anyone to support her, to meet her needs, to protect her. Someone has taken advantage of her. Someone has scammed her. Someone has ripped her off. And that other individual is clearly in the wrong. She is right. The other person is wrong. She's got this adversary. And so she comes to the judge saying, judge, make this right. It's the judge's job to make sure that justice is carried out. And he doesn't care. He doesn't care about her plight. He doesn't care about what is going on in her life. Now, it's because of the vulnerability of widows that the Old Testament demanded special protection for the most vulnerable and oppressed in society. Let me give you an example. Back in the book of Exodus, chapter 22. Back in Exodus 22, verse 21. Thou shalt neither vex a stranger nor oppress him. Says, okay, don't take advantage of immigrants. For ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. Ye shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If thou afflict them in any wise, and they cry it all unto me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath shall wax hot, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives will be widows, and your children fatherless. 
wow, God takes this very seriously. He takes oppression and abuse and mistreatment of the weak very, very seriously. So taking advantage of a widow, taking advantage of a foreigner, taking advantage of a, an orphan, God takes immensely seriously. We get this again in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18. We see it again in Malachi 3 and verse 5. We see a portrait of the righteous man in Psalm 68, verse 5, that one of the features of the righteous man is that he speaks up for and defends the weak. God, it says, is a father of the fatherless and a judge of the widows. Is God in his holy habitation? God is the one who protects the fatherless. He is the one who protects the widow. He is the one who is the the one who ensures that justice is done for those who are mistreated. So all of that Old Testament background comes to the fore when we we, we jump into Luke 18. This widow, it was the judge's job description to make sure that the widow was taken care of, and he doesn't care, doesn't follow God's law. So what is she after? She's not after vindictive vengeance. It's not that, man, I want my pound of flesh, I want this person to pay. She's just after what is right after what is just, what is equitable. Now, in our text in verse 3, it says the, she came to him. We could actually render it this way. She kept on coming. She's persistent, coming again and again and again. She, she's coming after this judge, pleading with him to do the right thing. The judge is oblivious to the demands of the law. He's oblivious to the plight of her condition. So what options does she have? She doesn't have money to be able to be like, listen, I'll pay for you to do your job. She doesn't have any authority or standing in the community to try and use leverage to make him act. All she's got is persistence. So whenever the judge was holding court, I think we can picture her showing up, standing in line to speak in the court to say, would you enact justice? When she runs into the judge out in the marketplace, here she is coming up and be like, would you think about my case? Will you see that the right thing is done? Again and again and again. So notice the outcome. Verse 4. And he would not for a while. He refused. He was steadfast and committed to his refusal to do nothing. He was like, I don't care about your condition. I don't care about the right thing here. I don't care about justice. I can't be bothered. He's an unmoved slab of granite, but her persistence begins to chip away at his reluctance. Now, he's too proud to admit it publicly, so we get an internal dialogue. Notice that in verse 4. Afterward, he said, within himself. So he's not telling anyone this, but this judge is thinking this in his heart. Though I fear not God nor regard man. So he admits, you know, he, he, he's like, I don't care about God. I, I'm not moved by any sort of altruism or any sense of morality or ethics. Yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. I don't care about God. I don't care about her. I don't care about this pathetic widow who keeps coming and annoying me. But because she is so persistent, because she keeps on bothering me, I'm going to do the right thing. Now, the idea of weary me in uh, verse 5, great great rendering there. She's worn him down. But there's, there's there's a cool metaphor here. The idea is to strike under the eye. Like, she's going to just wear me down. She's going to browbeat me would be kind of the terminology we would use today. We don't literally mean when someone browbeats you, they're hitting you in the face, but that they have just worn you down to a point that you have to relent. The sense of that word is to cause great annoyance to and thus wear someone out. Her continual coming wears down the hard-hearted judge and moves him into action in spite of the fact that he's evil, in spite of the fact that he doesn't care, in spite of the fact that he is selfish. 
So what we have stacked up here in the first five verses is a judge who is immensely wicked and uncaring and a widow who is immensely persistent. That's the parable. Now let's dive into the point, and this is really the meat of the message today. And the Lord said, so we get this, this little phrase here that tells us that we've got a shift, we've got signaling a change in the, in the parable. So he's given us this parable, this, this hypothetical story, and now he's going to draw the spiritual lessons from it. He says, hear what the unjust judge says. Literally, the idea here is the judge of injustice. You think about the word judge, justice, come from the same, same root. The one characteristic you want in a judge is what? Justice, adherence to the law. No one above the law. Everyone gets, gets equal treatment before the law. Judge of injustice, wicked, evil individual. He says, hear what he says. Listen to what the judge has said, because that's the point of the parable. Jesus makes it abundantly clear that the judge's injustice is not the point of comparison with God, but the point of contrast. Which brings us to really the, the first lesson that Jesus wants us to draw from this. Remember, the point of the parable is calling us to pray. Okay, In between the first coming and the second coming, sustain your faith by praying. Why should we pray? We pray because of God's justice. We pray because of God's justice. The judge is unjust, but here's something we know about God. He is just. The judge of all the earth will do right. Okay, that is what, what Abraham said. We read those verses in the Old Testament. Even the weakest, the most vulnerable, the most oppressed, God will stand up for them in the end. You don't believe God is just? Go home and read the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is a declaration to say that the God of history will one day make all things right. He will one day assert his rule on this wicked world. He will bring judgment on those who have rejected him and relief to those who have been oppressed. He is just. He is righteous. He will act. Here's what justice is, simply God being consistent with himself. Normally, justice is going to be about adherence to a standard, an outside standard of this is what is right, this is what is wrong. Guess what? God is the standard. There's not some, rules, some rule book that is above God, because that would be God. Rather, God's, the, the standard of God's justice is God himself. So justice is simply God being who he is all the time. He is holy, therefore he hates evil. He is good, therefore he loves goodness. He is loving, therefore he loves his people when they are oppressed. And he will see to it that justice is done. And make no mistake, God is jealous for his holy name. When his name is defamed, when his name is ignored, when people do not fear him, he will see to it that that is handled. God is not a hard-hearted judge. There's contrast between the judge and God. He is not some hard-hearted judge who we must stir to action by frenzied persistence. We would be making a mistake to say that the point of this parable is we need to sort of pray God into action, that God is up there in heaven really reluctant. And if we just pray hard enough and we're just emotional enough and we're just persistent enough, we can sort of get a reluctant God to act. How often do we pray that way? How often do you pray that way where, you're, where you think that my prayers are really about trying to change God? What if prayer is not about trying to change God, but rather about us laying hold of the promises he's already given? What if God is not a reluctant judge, but is eager to help his people? In fact, the point of the parable is quite the opposite. If the wicked judge acts for a persistent widow, how much more will an infinitely righteous and merciful God? We don't have to convince God of here's what's right and here's what's wrong. 
he is of pure horizon to behold evil. And listen, if you feel outraged by injustice, God is infinitely more outraged. Right? If evil grieves you, it grieves God infinitely more. If, if evil angers you, it angers God infinitely more. He has a righteous and holy hatred towards all sin. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. So God is just. And because of that, we can pray to him for justice, knowing that this is consistent with his character. What a lesson for prayer. When we pray, we ought to pray in a way that is consistent with how God has revealed himself. So if you know God is a God of love, pray in a way that's consistent with God being a God of love. If you know that God is merciful, pray for his mercy. We're going to see uh, in two weeks when we come to the, the, the parable of the, uh, the tax collector and the Pharisee. Be merciful to me, the sinner. We know that God is a God of mercy, so pleading for his mercy is consistent with his character. Ransack the Bible, study the Bible to see who God is, and then pray in a way that's consistent with his character, with who he has revealed himself to be. How we think God is determines the way that we pray. So remember the Old Testament, the, the prophets they're of Baal. They're of Mount Carmel with Elijah, and uh, they're trying to see whose God can bring fire down from heaven. And their view of Baal is that Baal is very fickle. Baal is immoral. Baal is distant. And so they have to run around and get his attention. They're cutting themselves, and they're just going crazy. And, and Elijah's kind of making fun of them, like, oh, did your God go on vacation? Yell louder for him. Maybe he'll hear you. How you think of your God determines how you worship him and how you pray to him. Beloved, our God is infinitely perfect. He is utterly consistent with himself. He is unchanging, and his promises are secure. His promises do not change. Pray like it. Pray like it. So look at how God's justice has worked out. In verse 7, Jesus asks a rhetorical question. And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry unto him day and night? Uh, the sense of this, it's hard to bring out in English, but this is emphatic in the Greek. Will not God surely vindicate his elect? There's, there, there's no question about it. There's no doubt about it. There's no like, well, will he or won't he? It is, will not God surely do this? And the answer, of course, is he absolutely will. No doubt about God. He will surely, in the end, avenge his own elect. So when you pray for God to enact justice, when you say, God, there's wrong that is being done to me. Will you see to it that this is dealt with? We have a promise that God will avenge. He will vindicate. Now, avenge is not like, ha, now we're even. You got what coming to you. Woo! No, rather that God's justice is vindicated and your claim to be a follower of God has been vindicated. Listen, throughout history, for most of history, those who have named the name of Christ have not been in positions of power, but have been in positions of oppression. They've been in places where they are persecuted, been places where they are regarded as, look, you guys are weak and helpless, and have been mistreated, been ignored, been persecuted, and guess what? The bad guys got away with it. Except they won't. Except they won't. One day Jesus will come back, and when they die, they stand before the judge of all the universe. Will he not avenge his own elect? Will he not vindicate them? The day will come when people will say, where is your God who you are trusting in? When he will come bursting through the eastern skies and will make all things new. And those who trusted in God and suffered for it will be vindicated. You put your hope 
in the one who is on the winning side. Will not God surely vindicate his elect? Yes, he will. God will bring about vengeance for his oppressed people. Just think about what that does for your soul, Romans 12. It says, avenge not yourself. Don't, don't take justice into your own hands. Don't feel like, I've got to go do something about this and bring about vengeance. He says, no, no, no. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. The litmus test of whether or not you believe that God is just is what do you do? How do you respond when you are wronged? Do you believe that God will vindicate you or do you believe that you have to vindicate yourself? So pray because God is just. Do you pray because you think God is ignorant and needs to be informed? Do you pray because you think God will be swayed by the volume of your words? Do you pray because you think that God is unwilling and must somehow be made willing? Or do you pray because you know who God is? Now here's a second lesson about prayer that comes from this. We pray not only because of God's justice, we pray because of his sovereignty. Notice back again verse 7. And shall not God avenge his own elect? What an interesting way to refer to God's people, his own elect. Now, it's not the idea of what well, we held an election and we chose. The, the idea of elect is those who God has chosen. If, you, if you're a child of God, what great comfort does it bring to know that God has chosen you, that he wants you, and from eternity past he made a plan to save you. And by the way, it had nothing to do with your merit or you, can, you, you deserving it. It's totally of his grace. It says, will not God vindicate his elect? Now, that word election rests on the doctrine of God's sovereignty, that it is God who chooses us. It is God who saves us, and it is his working as the sovereign, the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God will surely act on our behalf, not just because he is just, but because we are chosen. Election's a glorious truth in the Bible, and it's one that should elicit our worship and our praise, not, not, not bickering and division. A lot of people, well, election, well, let's fight about it. No, it's meant to make us step back and say, God loves me, and he has chosen me, and I don't know all the ins and outs about it, but I am his, and it's all of his grace. Now, here's the comparison from the less to the greater. If the wicked judge ultimately vindicated a helpless stranger who he didn't care about at all, how much more will a loving God vindicate those whom he has chosen from before the foundation of the world? How much more? He's far more righteous than the unjust judge, and we are far more loved than that unnamed widow. The, the truth of God's sovereignty should motivate us to pray. Some people say, well, if God's sovereign and he's working all things according to the counsel of his will, why pray? Why bother if he's going to do what he's going to do? My question is, if God is not sovereign, why bother praying if he's incapable of doing anything in history, if he's sort of held captive to the will and the actions of sinful fallen men? Why bother? Listen, God is not captive to anything or anyone. So we pray to a God who's in control of history. We pray to a God who is sovereign over everything, including the suffering we go through. Now, sometimes we, the, the phrase... The elect can kind of convey arrogance. We are the elect. We're the, we're the special ones, and everyone else is a loser. You know, we get this little phrase, the elect which cry night, day and night to him. Why are they crying day and night unto him? Because you know what? Just because you're a child of God does not mean that you have an easy life. Just because we've been chosen by God does not mean that we have it easy. Rather, we go through intense suffering and pain between the already and the not yet. 
And that drives us to cry out to him. Cry is a stronger word than just sort of pray. There's emotion. There there, There is neediness. There is desperation when we say, God, I need you. Who am I in heaven but you? There's no one on earth that I desire beside you. God, would you help? Would you strengthen? There's a desperation and a recognition of need. And often it is suffering that makes us realize that. Now, the idea of crying day and night, pray always. Don't faint. It's the idea of praying, as Leon Morris puts it, with unwearied persistence. It's because we, quote, realize we are in great need and recognize that our one hope is in God. So when we see our neediness and our brokenness and the hardness of what we have ahead of us, and we see the sovereignty of God, it's the most natural thing in the world to cry out to him night and day. You ever wonder why God sends hardship into your life? He doesn't give us a definitive answer, and, and, and we may never get an answer even when we get to glory. But we do know this, according to God's word, one of God's reasons for sending suffering is to grow us, is to purify our faith. God will send us suffering. He will permit injustice to drive us closer to him. If it were not for hardship, we would very quickly forget God. If it were not for suffering, we would very quickly fall back on our own resources. It is suffering and it is hardship that makes us grab hold of the throne of grace. Psalm 119, the psalmist says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Like it's hardship that that brings us close to God and makes us cling all the more tightly to his hand. So we pray because God is sovereign. The same God who has chosen us will glorify us. The same God whose purposes reach into eternity past will accomplish those purposes in time. And nothing, beloved, absolutely nothing occurs outside of his plan, and nothing that does occur will derail his plan. And that's the God we pray to. So pray because God is just. Pray because God is sovereign. But a third lesson, pray because of God's faithfulness. End of verse 7 has this phrase, though he bear long with them. Okay, will not God avenge his people, though he bear long with them? I tell you, verse 8, that he will avenge them speedily. Now, this is a bit of a a, a naughty issue when you're trying to, to work through this, study this out. What's it meant by this phrase, though he bear long with them? There's a couple of different ways we could render this. Um, we have it as, as, as I just read, will God not vindicate, though he bear long? Or we could see it as a parallel question. Shall not God avenge his own elect, and will he delay? And the idea with the way that that question is worded, the first question expects a positive reply. Uh, will he not avenge his own elect? Yes, he will. The second one expects a negative reply. And will he bear long with him? No, he won't. He'll he'll, he'll act quickly. So we get this parallelism. You notice how verse 7 asks two questions, and verse 8 makes two statements. So verse 7 asks one question. Shall not God avenge his own elect? Verse 7 says, I tell you, he will avenge them. Verse 7 asks, will he delay? Will he bear long with them? Verse 8 says, he will avenge them speedily. You see that parallelism? Question, will he avenge? Yes, he will avenge. Will he forbear? No, he'll act speedily. That's the parallelism with what's going on. So here we see God's faithfulness. 
Yes, he will avenge. Yes, he will act. Yes, he will save. Yes, he will return one day. And he will answer speedily. But that raises another problem. We're still waiting. How can we say with a straight face, with an honest heart, oh yes, God will answer prayers speedily when we're still waiting for the kingdom to come? How do we, how do we, work, how do we deal with that? How can we say God will answer speedily when he has delayed the final eradication of evil? You say, if God's in control, why is he allowing evil to continue to run rampant in his world? Like, why not stop it? Why the wait? That term speedily can mean a couple of different things. One is immediately. God will answer immediately. Immediately. So pray, answer. It could mean he'll do it soon. You'll pray and then there'll be a short gap and then he'll act. Or it could mean suddenly. When God does act, it'll be with a bang. Or it could mean surely. God will answer and he will do it in such a way that it will be absolutely certain. So as we think about speedily, I, I, I think we can rule out immediately because Jesus hasn't come yet. I think soon has the same problem. Well, he's going he's gonna to do this really soon. You're going to pray and he's going to answer really quickly. Sometimes we pray for years and years and years for something to happen and we don't see it happen in our lifetime. Right? Christians have been praying for millennia, thy kingdom come, and it hasn't come yet. So I don't think it means soon, but rather the idea that when Jesus does come back, as we saw last week, it's going to happen suddenly. And it's going to happen surely. He is a faithful God. He will fulfill his promises. It might not be on our timetable, but it will be absolutely on time according to his timetable. Michael read 2 Peter 3. And it says, listen, God doesn't count time like we count time. Days is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. That's not to say that God undergoes a sequence of time like we do. Simply to say, what we regard as, this is a really long time, this is a delay, is not a delay in the plans of God. God sees time in one instant. He is not subject to time. He is not undergoing or experiencing time in any way. He is outside of time. He's God. I am that I am. And then it goes on to say the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, that this apparent delay from our perspective and the return of Jesus is not God sort of dropping the ball and fulfilling his promises. Listen, we make promises all the time that we can't keep. Sometimes we intend really, we're well-intentioned, but we just don't have the physical strength or the foresight to finish the job. Right? You get politicians who make promises. Sometimes they're lying through their teeth. Other times they promise to do stuff that they don't actually have the ability to do. They get into office and they realize, hmm, I don't actually have the ability to do that. God's promises are not that way. It's not slack concerning his promises, but is long-suffering and patient to usward. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. One of the reasons why God is delaying from our perspective is to save sinners. The any in 2 Peter 3 verse 8 is the, the, the us, right? He's long-suffering towards us. He's delayed for us to come to faith in his son. If Jesus had come back, say, the day before you came to faith in Jesus, you would have been lost. He's delayed for you to come to faith in him. And then it goes on to say in 2 Peter 3 and verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night suddenly. So delay from our perspective, God is saving his people. But when he does come, it's going to be sudden. I think that's what's wrapped up in that word speedily. We're just hanging on that one word there in verse 8. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. It's certain, not necessarily soon, and it is sudden. Why should we pray? We should pray because God is faithful. He will fulfill 
every single one of his promises. There will be no part of his good word that will be left undone when all of human history is finished. The fuel for our prayers is the power of the Holy Spirit. And the foundation of our prayers is the promise of God. And beloved, the fulfillment of our prayers is the return of Jesus. I'll say that again. The foundation of our prayers is the promise of God. The fulfillment of our prayers is the return of the Son. And the fuel for our prayers is the power of the Holy Spirit as he sustains our faith. All three persons of the Trinity helping us pray. Promises of the Father, the return of the Son, the power of the Holy Spirit. He will avenge them speedily. God is faithful. So, beloved, pray. You ever ask this question? Why hasn't God answered my prayers yet? Praying, praying, praying. Why has he not answered my prayers yet? Could it be that our yet, our deadline is too short, too soon? Could it be that our horizon is too narrow? You see, what if God does answer all of our prayers in the end? All of our longings for deliverance, all of our prayers for justice, all of our cries for help are, in the end of human history, answered by the coming of Jesus. We have the martyrs under the altar in Revelation 6 and verse 10. Listen to what they're saying. Here are these people who have been beheaded for the name of Christ, have been martyred for the name of Christ, and they're asking a question that maybe you can identify with. As they await the coming of Jesus, they cry with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? But beloved, one day those prayers will be answered. We see in the book of Revelation there is a vial that is full with the prayers of the saints that is dumped out as God unleashes his justice in the world. Our prayers will be answered. Maybe not the way that we imagine them to be, but the way that God intended them to be. Brings us to the, the final point here, the final, final lesson. We pray because of God's promise. The end of verse 8. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? It does not say if the Son of Man cometh. It says when the Son of Man cometh. There will be an ultimate fulfillment of all the promises of God. When the Son of Man cometh, when he comes to rule, when he comes to reign, when he comes to judge, when he comes to make all things new, when he comes to establish his kingdom, and when he comes one day to make a new heaven and a new earth. When the Son of Man comes, and then there's a question, will he find faith on the earth? Literally, will he find the faith? You say, what kind of faith are we talking about? The faith that we just described, the kind of faith that persists in prayer. You realize it takes faith to persist in prayer. You don't really think that God's ever going to answer. I'll tell you one thing you won't do. You won't persist in prayer. If you don't believe that Jesus absolutely will come back and God's promises will be fulfilled, you won't waste your time praying and doing something that is pointless. We only pray if we believe the promise of God. And here's the amazing thing. The more we pray, the stronger our faith becomes in the promise of God. He says, will will the Son of Man find that kind of faith on the earth? It seems to imply that in the last days, there's not going to be this huge, massive revival of millions of people coming to Jesus and and fervency. Rather, the last days seem to be days of of empty pews and non-existent prayer lives. It seems to be the last days will be days when many will fall away from the faith and there will be a great departure and people will be caught up in deception. It seems that the last days will be like the days of Noah and Lot, where most people are completely oblivious 
to the things of God. So will he find the faith on the earth? Now, he will. There will be believers when Jesus returns. But it seems to imply they will be few. But think about the connection between faith and prayer. Augustine put it this way. When faith fails, prayer dies. In order to pray, then we must have faith. And that our faith fail not, we must pray. Faith pours forth prayer. And the pouring forth of the heart in prayer gives steadfastness to faith. So you need faith so that you will pray. And you need to pray so that your faith will remain strong. The two go together. The question, will he find this faith on the earth, really puts the question to you and me. If Jesus were to return today, would he find that kind of persistent praying kind of faith in your life? Or would he find faith that has been beaten down with discouragement? Will he find faith that is weak? Faith that is anemic because it's not being fed with prayer? We're living in the waiting room of eternity. We're living on the the, the cusp of Jesus coming back at any moment. And we live by faith, faith that is expressed in and sustained by prayer. Prayer is our lifeline. Prayer is our oxygen. Prayer is our food. So asking the question, how do we live between the already and not yet? So we've got to live by faith really is to say we need to live by prayer. We need to be a people who pray, take it to the Lord in prayer. There's been many, many discouragements that we face as God's people. There is injustice, there is suffering, there is pain, there is bereavement. There's even the failure in our own lives. How do we respond? How will you respond when that, when that comes? The hymn that we're going to sing as we conclude our service gives us a really good answer. I run to Christ. What do you do when you're, when you're chased by fear? I run to Christ. The the song goes on, I run to Christ when I'm torn by grief. I run to Christ when worn by life. I run to Christ when vexed by hell. I run to Christ when stalked by sin. I run to Christ when plagued by shame. So whether you're facing, facing fear, grief, weariness, discouragement, sin, or shame... Run to Jesus over and over and over again because he is coming back one day and he is faithful. Father, may we learn to run to Christ.